episode is part of a special series created under lockdown with the people making change under the global coronavirus pandemic. Dr. Megan Parsons is an NHS doctor who specialises in mental health and works in London. We sat down to discuss privatisation, health and social care under coronavirus, and why the death toll among people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds has been so high. This is Future Heist, conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve-Smith. You're a junior doctor in the health service. What have the last few weeks been like for you? Um, well, it's, it's been pretty up and down, I guess. Um, I guess like it probably has for, for most people. Um, but me, so I'm, I'm working in mental health and my partner works in the general hospital. Um, and we were living with my mum, who's classed as vulnerable. So kind of the, the beginning of it was, was a lot of kind of anxiety and guilt and kind of thinking about everything I touch in the house and, and worrying about bringing COVID back to her. Um, but then me and my partner are both lucky enough that we were able to kind of move out of my mum's house and into our own flat. Um, and being able to kind of social distance properly has, has definitely eased all of that stress. Um, and then it's kind of funny because my work, I'm on outpatients at the moment. So my workload's actually gone down because um, we're doing things via video link, um, which means that then I can do a bit more at, at home kind of while my partner's um, working like shift work. Um, and then when I do my own calls, then there is kind of, there is patient contact there, but um, it's kind of constantly in your mind, um, weighing up the risks of how, how risky is it for me to go and see them? Am I going, if I go to the old age ward, am I going to bring, bring COVID there? Um, and kind of a lot of balancing risks and discussing with, with seniors. Um, and then just thinking about kind of every day, everything I do, trying to minimize my contact with other people, just because I know at some point I am going to have to go to review a vulnerable patient or or kind of I'm still dropping things around for my mum deliveries and that um so yeah it's it's very up and down um so you yourself are from a black and minority ethnic background um and the shocking reality is that many of the people who've lost their lives to coronavirus already are from the same background and while some people blame genetic differences, others point to the social differences and the lack of choice faced by so many people. Do you think that institutional racism has a role to play in the impact of COVID-19? Yeah, yeah, I 100% do, do believe that institutional racism has a role to play and kind of it, I guess it occurs in so many different ways. So um, it impacts people's kind of baseline health. So um, just the, the ability to be healthy in this country, institutional racism impacts on that because it impacts on your, um, your employment, it impacts on your living circumstances, um, kind of it impacts on just the, the services that are available in your area, um, the parks, the gyms, um, things like that. And, and also on your, um, on kind of your, 
your your wealth and your your ability to kind of pay for things that you need to be healthy in this country um so i think it impacts on the the baseline health but then also it impacts on people's ability to abide by the social distancing guidance um so whether that's in in work so um kind of with the with the power imbalances that there are for many BAME um, staff and particularly people who are born abroad. Um, I think that they're, and, and from speaking to friends, they say that they're less able to say that they don't want to do something because it's unsafe or less able to, to kind of stand up um, against seniors because they know that disproportionately people from a BAME background are more likely to um, to kind of be be brought up um, for disciplinaries and and to be punished, um, but then also I think kind of not not thinking of healthcare workers or um, essential workers, just the general public's ability to to social distance in overcrowded housing or um, kind of places where you don't you don't have more than one bathroom in your house and and all these kind of things, um, and then also. I guess I kind of think it, it occurs at the level of one when a BAME person does present to hospital, um, just kind of how their symptoms are treated and um, kind of the experience that they, they get there. And then because they do disproportionately get a, a negative experience and poorer care and, and worse health outcomes, then they often prevent a kind of delay coming into hospital. Um, so arrive more unwell. Um, so yeah, I guess it, I, I kind of see that it happens at so many different levels. Yeah, definitely. So more than ever, people are aware of the valuable contribution that so many migrants make to the NHS. And there's rightly been a lot of applause, um, for people like that. Do you think that COVID-19 has changed the narrative around immigration? And do you think there's a danger of differentiating between deserving and undeserving migrants? Um, so I guess with the narrative around immigration um, and COVID-19, I think I've, I've seen kind of it going in two different ways. So um, partly there's the um, kind of criticising uh, people from backgrounds where maybe um, they live kind of with more family members in, in one house and, and things like that. And so I've seen quite a, a lot of kind of racist comments about that kind of thing. And then also... Um, I guess the kind of racism towards um, Chinese people and 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 that side of things. Um, but then I have also seen, yeah, I guess I guess it's it's pretty hard to um, kind of thank the workers of the NHS without having photos that do include people from BAME backgrounds. Um, although I do I do remember when the claps first started, um, there were a lot of photos where where all the members of staff were white, so they they weren't kind of depicting what the NHS is really like. Um, but that has that has changed, so I can see um, I can see that there are improvements with the narrative of our NHS depends on migrants, and and it's kind of pretty hard to show the healthcare workers who have died um, and only have white healthcare workers because there, there just aren't as, as many of them. Um, but then, yeah, I guess moving on to the, the question of whether there's a negative that comes from that narrative. Um, I, I've been thinking about it quite, quite a bit because I guess um, 
I split it into, do you, do you try and achieve what you want to achieve as soon as possible by any means necessary? Or do you kind of think of the, the long-term impact? So I know with um, like addressing racism and Islamophobia and anti-refugee rhetoric, um, a lot of, there are a lot of arguments to be made about um, the value that those groups of people do provide for our country. But if people can only be um, kind of treated equally, if they provide something for this country, then you kind of lose the social justice argument that people have a right to be here just because they have a right, they don't have to give anything back. Um, and I think kind of when you, when you do lose that social justice argument, then it means that it's much harder to fight in all different areas based on um, something should be done just because it's right. So you end up with, well, it should be done for the deserving few or people who work hard or people who've kind of achieved what, or already achieved something. Um, and I think then it seeps into other areas of society. So you see it with kind of benefits that people can't just be helped out. They have to earn it and deserve it. Or you see in the education system, kind of people who, have already maybe got things a bit easier, um, get more help, and we don't help the people who might need more help at the time. Um, and I do think, if, if anything, there's a pretty strong argument for people who haven't been fortunate enough to have the opportunities to get kind of the qualifications that would get them a good job here. Perhaps they are the people who, who need more help than, than anyone else. Um, I don't know if that made sense it does it makes um total sense because i found that really interesting i was watching a, a video interview that you did and that's what you were saying and I, I think that's um i think it's it's really true um something else you were saying in that interview was that a lot of free things have been offered to nhs staff and as nice as these free things are it's seems there seems to be a hypocrisy with million pound corporations offering free things for NHS staff while treating their own workers badly, not paying them enough, um, laying them off, etc. And I was also thinking about how these free things for the NHS contrasts with the what we've heard over the last decade or more of the NHS cuts and um, services being cut and lack, lack of funding for things that they vitally need. In your opinion, have the funding cuts impacted our ability to respond to the coronavirus crisis yeah i'd, I'd say definitely and um i think kind of the the funding cuts particularly to the nhs and to health and social care have but also just kind of austerity in in general so um the fact that we've got more people living in poverty people are living in poorer housing people can't afford to get kind of the nutrition that they need to stay healthy um so you're already kind of dealing with a, a population that are you have more vulnerable people um more people on low incomes more people who are malnourished um but then also you've got a healthcare service that has fewer beds than, than it should have. Um, you've got healthcare service where people were already kind of struggling to maintain it. And it was already in crisis kind of over and over and winter crises. And I know um, they had a, um, was it the Red Cross called a, a crisis in, in the NHS a few years ago. Um, so you already had kind of people that felt undervalued, um, they felt overworked, they felt that they couldn't work safely kind of before the pandemic. And then on top of that, you're, you're putting 
kind of the all the increased stresses of, of the pandemic on top of people. So yeah, I definitely think that the the years of kind of cuts and undermining the service we can provide and having this kind of um, almost the, the whole kind of propaganda about the sustainability of the NHS has greatly reduced its ability. Definitely. I was um, also reading that a lot of privatisation had been going on during the pandemic, that contracts are being handed out to private companies in answer to this. Have you seen the, have you seen evidence of this or have you heard about this or what do you think of it? So I think because I'm not working in the general hospital, um, I'm a little bit a little bit removed from um, kind of quite a lot of the the work that is going on. Um, so I haven't seen I haven't seen it myself, but I have heard colleagues um, in other hospitals talking about how, say, testing has been privatized, um, given to private companies, and um, and kind of things like that. And I guess you you have seen in the pandemic private companies hiking up the prices of hand wash or um, the prices of kind of PPE. Um, and I guess I, I just feel that if your company's aim, your, your major aim is to make profit and to make a profit for your shareholders, then kind of public health is, is not gonna come above that. Um, so to me, yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense that in a public health crisis, you would want to give more power um, to private companies. And I think kind of making sure that our country doesn't rely so much on, on private companies for whether it's for um, kind of research into vaccinations and treatments and, and just everything. I think relying on a, a company that's priority is to provide money for the shareholders is never going to re result in the best care for the population. Definitely. You're a British Medical Association rep in your workplace, how has the union been helping health workers during this pandemic? Um, so I kind of first got properly involved in the union a couple of years ago. Um, and before that, I, I hadn't really known much about what it does or kind of what goes on behind the scenes. Um, but attending some of the conferences I think it, it really empowers you just kind of as a, as a baseline because you, you get in contact with other doctors who kind of are thinking similar way to you. And so when you are feeling kind of stress, stresses of this pandemic, I find it really uplifting seeing kind of the work that they're doing um, as individual BMA members. Um, but then also the union does so many things that I, I feel I'm still not aware of all of them. Um, but I know they were lobbying, say, for um, the families of healthcare workers, say if the healthcare worker loses their life during this pandemic um, and their family don't have indefinite leave to remain, the BMA had, had lobbied for that to be granted. Um, so I think that's a, a really good thing. And I know they've got quite a few special departments like the... Um, uh, refugee doctors and dentists liaison groups and and they've got kind of a lot of things going on um, but then also I just find um, that they're they're kind of there to speak to about um, maintaining staff safety so my hospital hasn't had the problems that a lot of other hospitals have had um, but I know the BMA have been kind of keeping records of where there are PPE shortages they've got a PPE hotline that you can call 24 7 um, to discuss problems um, 
yeah, they're, they're there kind of to support you. So um, they've got um, the one of the BMA barristers for our local area. You can kind of call him up at, at any point to check and see kind of what are the trust duties to, um, to us as doctors. Um, so, yeah, I feel that they've, they've been been pretty good from what I've seen um but of course we are a bit of a different union compared to some of the others so um I, I have heard kind of the national union of teachers and things maybe um kind of maybe uh speak out in a different way to our union um but I was really impressed with um Dr uh, Chand Nagpal um and he's done quite a lot of um speaking out about the uh disproportionate number of BAME deaths and calling for it to be um, recorded and for, for a kind of inquiry. Um, so yeah, I've been, been really impressed with what he's been doing too. Yeah, that's really good. There's rightly been a lot of praise for health workers recently. Um, but at the same time, you've spoken out about the need to act on this feeling of solidarity. What would that look like for you? Um, so I guess one of the things that I've seen most frequently um, when people talk about um, clapping for the NHS is people saying kind of you you will clap for the NHS, but you didn't vote for the NHS. Um, and I do remember with the last um, election, there was there was quite a big movement around kind of vote for to make this vote a vote for the NHS. Um, and it was disappointing to see that it, it didn't go that way. Um, so I guess I would say that one of one of the things that you, you can do is is kind of vote for the NHS um, and vote kind of a, against a party that's been cutting the services, undermining the NHS, and that has many members that have openly said that, that they want it to be privatised. Um, but I think also we can't kind of just wait for an election um, over and over. So I think it's demanding that we reverse some of the uh, the changes that were made to the NHS and reverse a lot of the privatisation. Um, I think a, a pandemic and a, a crisis is a, a definite time when those kind of things can be reversed because that is definitely in the public interest. And because it's, I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that after this pandemic, we'll have to kind of look at where we're going to get our money from and things are going to be tight and there's going to be have, going to have to be more austerity. And I guess it's a choice between whether you choose to take that money back from people who are, are already suffering and have kind of much less to, to give, or you take it from people who are currently making a profit from ill health and suffering in, in the NHS and who are providing a poorer service at a more expensive rate. Um, so yeah, I think it would be kind of working in, in whatever way you can to reverse privatisation. So whether that's um, just having chats with your family, friends and colleagues and kind of and telling them about it. Um, and there's, there's various books on the history of the privatisation in the NHS. Um, there's one by uh, Dr. Yusufel Gingy, which is a, a really nice short one. And I don't read that much and I, I manage that. And there's a lot of good facts you can remember um, that I found are pretty persuasive with people. Um, but yeah, I think it's just taking every opportunity to, to kind of, um, talk about why we're in this situation. So it's, it's not just that we're, we're a country that whatever we did, we wouldn't be able to cope. It's that there's been a, a sustained attack on our health and social care system, um, for kind of the last decade, two decades. And 
and each kind of attack there was a, a conscious decision and we could make a conscious decision to to reverse those changes and also to to move forwards and to improve things after this pandemic um i was watching a report about how the obviously the death and the deaths in care homes have been um, a contentious issue because originally weren't included in the official figures and the impact of coronavirus on care homes has been massive and they were discussing the idea that social care is considered outside the NHS core services and how and what I wondered what you thought of the idea that social care and NHS core health services should be more integrated into a, a similar system. Yeah, I um, I guess when I, um, so I was working as a psychiatry doctor in Australia in the Northern Territory um, in 2017, 2018. Um, and I definitely noticed that they don't have this split between health and social care. And so there isn't this um, kind of fight between two organizations that are underfunded as to who should be funding what services. So there was a lot more collaboration and it resulted in um, kind of a easier jobs for, for everyone and the job was more pleasant and you, you worked kind of together with the social worker, which was really good. Um, but also it meant the patient stays in hospital were much shorter because they weren't kind of waiting days and days for people to argue over where the funding's gonna come from. It was just, this is the one service, here's the funding and we've got a place and we can, can get you out much quicker. Um, so I, I do think that it's, it was a good service when, when the two were, were connected together and, and more integrated. Um, but I also think that it's kind of, it's, it's something that we need to do because looking at like the World Health Organization's definition of health, it's not purely your, um, your kind of physical health. It's more about um, your whole social emotional well-being and your ability to, I guess, kind of lead the life that, that you have reason to value and to be engaged in society. Um, and so if we're taking that as kind of someone's health and you want the services working in that area to be integrated and to be working together because you could give somebody the, the, the kind of physical treatment that they need to kind of improve their maybe their biomarkers or, or their statistics. But if you're not providing kind of the, the holistic care and the social care that they need to be integrated in the community, then their health isn't going to improve on on kind of the, the WHO standards. Um, so yeah, I think definitely we do need more collaboration um, between health and social care, but then also kind of more collaboration between like say the education system and looking at um, the education and curriculums impact on health and wellbeing and, and kind of housing and yeah. Yeah, a lot more, more of a kind of integrated and holistic view. Definitely. Um, I think that's all my questions. I was just going to ask as a last question, um, what can people do to support you and what you do? I guess taking every opportunity that you have to, to kind of um, look at the, the bigger picture or to um, kind of raise the bigger issues with whoever you're, you're talking to. Because I think um, what we're seeing quite often is um, like a, a narrowed view um, that says, oh, we shouldn't talk about um, race and health at the moment because we need to get through this, or we shouldn't talk about austerity and we shouldn't criticize things that have been done in the past because it's not helpful. And I think if we 
don't look at, at kind of the decisions and, and things that were done that have led us to, to be in this state where we can't really cope with this pandemic and where the, the options that we choose to address it are still often failing to prioritise public health uh, over the health of the economy. Um, if we don't look at kind of how we got here, then I don't see how we can learn and how we can improve things for the future. Um, and so I think, yeah, just uh, just kind of looking at the, the wider politics and the socioeconomic system and the socioeconomic values that have led to where we are. Um, but then I also think for my morale, um, so working in mental health and especially in mental health um, with patients who have kind of chronic and, and enduring illnesses, um, I think my morale would be boosted by seeing more people supporting them. So um, kind of, yes, yeah, supporting those in the community who may be more vulnerable to um, kind of the negative impacts of social um, isolation or who maybe don't have the, the finances available to them to, to manage with social distancing. Um, so, yeah, I think trying to, trying to target those people to offer them support and, and trying to think about how we can offer them support because there's been so many different creative ways people have offered support to NHS staff. I think if we thought about the vulnerable people in our population, we could offer them so much support. Um, and then lastly, I just, just want to say that kind of when I'm talking about NHS staff, I know that there is such a variation. So I know that um, I can socially distance quite easily and my, my salary is well above the median salary in this country. But I know that a lot of NHS staff are on kind of minimum wage and are on below the living wage. Um, so I think calling for, for kind of proper wages for, well, for all people in the population, but specifically for if, if you're targeting the NHS for NHS and social care workers. Um, and yeah, I guess kind of seeing who, who we're offering the free things to. And if, if there isn't only a finance, finite amount of, of free things, offering those to the people you need them most. I think that would, yeah, that would boost my morale. That's good. That's a good list of things to do. Um, <laughs> thanks so much for your time today, no Megan. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it's been, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. And um, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, hopefully it'll turn out all right. No, I'm sure it will. Thank you. No worries. Future Heist is recorded and produced by me, Rena Neve-Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassi, artwork by Fleur Beck, and sound editing by Gibran Farah. Ben Weaver-Hinks is our podcast consultant, and Charlotte Watts, our social media editor. You can find original illustrations for Future Heist by Charlotte on social media. Follow us at future underscore heist on Instagram and Twitter or future heist podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Special thanks to Chloe Vasegi. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.